After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. For the past 60 years, Britain has been falling in love with the magic of situation comedy. Throughout the 1970s, British sitcom went through a golden era with a long list of memorable characters, hilarious moments and timeless signature tunes. Melvin Hayes became a household name when he was cast as Gloria in Crofton Perry's second hit sitcom It Ain't Half Hot Mum, alongside Windsor Davis and Don Estelle. Apart from sitcom, Hayes has starred in a splattering of classic British films including Summer Holiday and Santa Claus the Movie. I was honoured to catch up with an icon of both the big and small screen to ask him about his unparalleled career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Melvin Hayes. So you starred alongside Cliff Richard and Una Stubbs for the classic 1963 film Summer Holiday. Can you give us a little snapshot of what it was like to work on? Well, I'd always, we'd already done the first one, which was The Young Ones. I did three. I did The Young Ones, Summer Holiday, A Wonderful Life. Um, when we made Summer Holiday... Because it followed um, The Young Ones, which had been an enormous success. It was the number one box office of the year. We suddenly realised we had a hit, you know. And so they spent a bit more money by going abroad. The only thing is, they sent me for a half an hour uh, to the, um, where, the, where you test all the buses, you know, to learn to drive and the skid patches, etc. Um, and so I had half an hour on the London driving a London bus, learning how to drive it. What I didn't know was when I got out to Athens, the first day's shooting was on top of a mountain and there was this London bus with a sheer drop over the side. So if you looked over the edge, you couldn't see below. The road was as wide as two London buses and the director, this was his first film, P.D. Yates. His second film was Bullet, which was all the car chases. So you can imagine what a maniac he was. Uh, and he said, right, I want you to drive the bus round the corner of the mountain, right? He said, I know you've had a practice in London. <laughs> On board was Cliff Richard, The Shadows, Eunice Stubbs. And all I could think of was, when this bus goes over the edge, the insurance is going to be enormous. So I put it into gear and he said, I'll be round the corner. He said, about 100 yards round the edge of the mountain. He said, if I wave my left arm, he said, you're too near the wall of the mountain. If I wave my right arm, he said, you're too near the edge. If I do this, just keep coming towards me. So I was behind the mountain and I heard, action! And I came round slowly towards him. And all I could see was a bunch of people waving their arms. So I drove straight at them. And when I got within 100 yards, he picked up a, a megaphone, a loud halo, and called out, We're zooming in for a close-up. Try and look scared. And that's in the film. I was terrified. I had to have a change of underwear. But it was wonderful, wonderful experience to do. Uh, I mean, I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. I've never had an acting lesson in my life. 
but to be in a hit musical, it, even Cliff said uh, a few weeks ago they showed the best top 100 and we were number 40-something. And he said, I know we weren't Oklahoma or Annie Get Your Gun or West Side Story, but we made a great impression on people's young lives. Um, when we did The Young Ones, which was the one before it, the choreographer, Herbie Ross, an American, said, you've got to have your hair dyed blonde. And I said, why? And he said, because in American films, the hero is like um, Ronald Reagan would have been, and the sidekick, Sonny Tufts or um, Van Johnson, were blonde. And Cliff was, so fair enough, I dyed my hair blonde. When we came to do Summer Holiday, I arrived at the studio and they said, where's the blonde hair? And I said, it's a, it's a different film. And they said, no, not. It's exactly the same. Cliff does the songs and you do the pratfalls. So I had to have my hair dyed every 10 days during that entire filming. We finished the film. On the first day we finished it, I had my hair dyed back to the dark brown it was. And then two days later, the phone goes, and it's the producer. And he said, uh, we want to put a number in called Bachelor Boy, which wasn't in previously. So would you be able to do another day's filming for us? And I said, yes. I said, but I'm not, not going to dye my hair for that one shot. No, no, not for one. They said, no, no, don't worry, we'll get you a wig. And the wig that they got me, the photograph they put outside in the centre of London, outside the cinema, 50 foot high, was me with this terrible, terrible wig. And if you see that film again, watch for that scene where the shadows, Cliff and myself, do Bachelor Boy, and I'm wearing a wig. So you've probably been asked this question more times than we've had hot dinners, uh, but you're possibly best known for your portrayal of Gloria in It Ain't Half Hot Month. Gloria, what's that? Not I'm really. only kidding, I'm only kidding. Oh. I'm only kidding. <laughs> The second sitcom to come out of the David Croft, Jimmy Perry franchise. Why do you think that the show struck a chord with the public? Well, it struck a chord in many ways. And that is, today, I can, every time I go into one of those corner Indian shops, um, I get asked, when is our show coming back? Because it's the only show on television which had two languages. Two, I mean, there was English and there was Urdu. They spoke Urdu, uh, genuine Urdu. Um, Michael Bates, who played basically the lead, um, he was born in India. And when they cast the part, when they cast the part, all the Indian actors said, it's wrong. Why are you using a, a white man instead of an Indian? And then they saw his performance and said, we couldn't have done it as well. Uh, and as Jimmy Perry said, one of the last things that Jimmy Perry ever said was, it was a piece of history that happened. You can't change history just to, you know, to make it a better story. Um, and if you notice in all the programs, in all the programs, the Indians always came off best. They always came off on top. Um, we never made a fool of them. In other words, Gloria always took the stick or Lofty or the Sergeant Major. Um, and... The one thing that Jimmy Perry and David Croft knew what to write about was 
the army and show business. So that's why it's a perfect combination. When you go highly high, you've got uh, show business. Uh, you've got a low, a low. Uh, you've got um, the army. Um, so to have show business and the army, they were really in their element because they both ran concert parties during the war. So it was all based on reality. Um, I always said that my character was not gay. He was theatrical. Very theatrical, because in one episode, he actually asked permission to get married to a lady. So in the last week, Britain's lost a comedy giant. What are your memories of Jimmy Perry? Jimmy Perry was the only writer that I've ever met in my 60 odd years in show business that would turn up every day to rehearsal. He wouldn't miss a day. He would be there at the rehearsal. Uh from morning till night, and he was there every day. He would turn up on location in filming. He was there every day. His enthusiasm was enormous. Um, he was <laughs> he was very show busy. And the saddest thing about Jimmy is he wrote Dad's Army so that he could get an acting part, um, which they never gave him. Um, he. He uh, wanted to play the part of the Cockney. Um, when we did in Einar Fotman, there was one episode where he turned up as an officer watching one of our shows. Um, and the idea was they were hoping that the um, Sergeant Major was hoping that as this officer was going to see the show and say, there are a load of rubbish, send them up front, get them out of this um, silly dresses they're wearing and all that. And you got a shot of Jimmy Perry sitting in the audience watching this show. And they said, well, what do you think of them? The sergeant major said, and the officer said, the captain and the major. And he said, I think they're lovely boys. <laughs> and of course, the thing was that he finished his scene. That's all he did. Next day, he turned up, still in his uniform, still with the makeup on. And I said, what are you doing? He said, um, well, I, I, I'm just getting ready in case David wants to reshoot the scene again. He was so enthusiastic. I said, David never, ever reshoots the scene. But Jimmy, we've lost one of our funniest, greatest uh, writers. When we lost David, we lost half the team, but to complete it, and they don't make them like that. We didn't have to have swear words. Um, there was nothing. There was never any double entendres uh, as such. There might be schoolboy sort of jokes. But um, I loved Jimmy. He was lovely. Playing such a memorable character in a hugely successful sitcom, I imagine, does have its downsides. After It Ain't Half Hot Mum, were you ever cautious of being typecast? Well... Let, let me see. There was a court case many years ago, which I was charged with dangerous driving. And it was all because the basic, I mean, it was thrown out of court. It was in all the papers. Um, and it was because um, the policeman who stopped me, <laughs> this officer who was six foot six, said I kicked him in the chest, which is a physical impossibility, uh, accused me of being... He said, get out of the car, you effing poof. 
And so he'd, uh, as my barrister said at the time, we can win this case if I can prove uh, that there was nothing, you were doing nothing wrong, but because he saw you and had seen you on television playing that part, he was under the impression, etc., etc. Um, but um, I once got a letter, a letter, we were on tour with the show doing a stage version, and I got a letter and I went into the next dressing room to Windsor Davis, and I said, Windsor, I said, I'm so upset, I've just had this letter. And it said, Dear Mr. Hayes, you call yourself a family man, and yet the way you take the rise out of us homosexuals is disgusting. Yours proud to be gay, blah, 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 Tom, whatever his name was. And Windsor said, don't worry, he said, there's a letter there. And he picked up his letter and handed it to me and says, Dear Mr. Davis, you profess to be a Welshman, and yet the way you take the ride out of the Welsh people, yours glad to be gay. And I went around to every dressing room and he'd written to everybody in the same sort of vein. But um, I never had any complaints or anything. And as far as being typecast, um, everything I ever did, I was typecast. Um, from the, from the very word go, because um, you can only be what you are. I mean, I'm five foot three and a half. I walk through the customs very tall. I pretend I'm five foot four. But um, so as far and this is me. This is what I look like. So you can't change what you actually look like. And if you make a all I can say to be typecast as Gloria. I wouldn't mind. I mean, because it was such a successful character. Thank you, Jimmy. And David. In 1975, you joined the Carry On franchise for their unique take on the start of World War. Why does Pinewood Studios hold such an emotional attachment for your generation of actors? Well, when I first went to Pinewood, it was amazing. I mean, my first trip to Pinewood... I was in my agent's office. I was in my agent's office and the phone went. Uh, I was very young. I was about, I was suppose, 16 or 17 or something like that. And it was the casting director from, um, from Pinewood. They were phoning from Pinewood Studios um, saying they were doing a film uh, called um, Anastasia. And they were, they wanted somebody with a Swedish accent to do one line. And I said, well, I'll put you on to it. And she said, yes, we've got somebody who can do Swedish accent. He'll be with you, uh, uh, be in the office in about an hour if you'd like to call back. So she put the phone down. I said, who have you got with a Swedish accent? She said, you. I said, I, I can't even talk with an English accent. I said, I can't do a Swedish accent. She said, anyway, she said, the line is, General Bonin, would you come this way, sir? This, and so I worked on it, and the phone went an hour later, and I did it, and she said, could you try it again? I went, General Bonin, would you come this way, sir? She said, I don't think that's very Swedish, but could you work on it? The next day, 11 o'clock, I was at Bynewood Studios, and I was met by the first assistant who said to me, have you got the line? And I said, yes. She said, try it. And I went, General Bonin, would you come this way, sir? And he went... That's terrible. That's dreadful. <laughs> so I walked on the set, <laughs> and there was my heroine, the lady I was in love with, Ingrid Bergman, standing at the top of the stairs with Yul Brynner, right? 
and the whole room, the studio, was all these beautiful dancers. And there was the director, and there was the dialogue director, and there was me. And everybody looked towards me. And the dialogue director said, do with the line. And I went, he said, what? And I said, no, I don't want to come in my the director walked over, Anatole Litvak, said, is this the boy? And I said, yes. And there was Ingrid Bergman, Neil Brenner, and every other star, and all these people looking at me. <laughs> and he said, give me the line. And I said, he said, do you speak English? And I said, yes. He said, well, do the line in English then. I said, General Benin, would you come this way, sir? Go away and record it. And if you ever see that film, somewhere you hear that line. It's a page boy going through. Um, but that was one of my memories of Pinewood. But there were so many. I mean, uh, I remember going up to Christopher Lee in 1954, 56. I made a film called The Curse of Frankenstein. And I played Peter Cushing as a young man. So I'm the youngest Frankenstein in the world. So I played young Baron Frankenstein. And Christopher Lee was the monster. And I went out to him at Pinewood Studios and I said, you obviously don't remember me, but I made you. And he went, I beg your pardon? And I, I said, I, 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 um, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to bother you. I, um, and I walked away. 25 years later, I made a hammer promotion thing where all these people from Hammer Studios, and there's Christopher Lee. So I thought, I've got to go and apologise. And I walked out to him and I said, um, 25 years ago, I, I came up to you. He said, what? I said, 25 years ago, I came up to you and I said, I made you. He said, you what? I said, I, it was a joke. I, could I have your autograph? <laughs> and I never, ever apologised to him. But um, that wasn't anything to do with Pinewood Studios, apart from the bar, the bar. But I went back a few years later to Pinewood, and it all sort of changed. The entrance was a different entrance, but it's now the Bond Studio, really. But you must go there. During the 1970s, performers like yourself would tour Britain with summer seasons. What are your memories of these times? Living on the Isle of Wight... Windsor Davis and I, in 1980, did a nine-week season at um, Shanklin Theatre, doing a play called Sink or Swim. Well, it sunk. In fact, one critic said, it ain't half rot, mum. Um, but what I'm saying is we did nine weeks. Now they do one night. For some reason... You can't fill an audience on the island. Um, I mean, like I did pantomime at the Palladium for 16 weeks. Now it's, they do half as much. Um, because I suppose, because of television, because of films. But the days of summer seasons, I mean, Blackpool, for example, there was a star on every pier. There was a star at the Opera House. There was a star at the Grand, um, but they ain't no stars anymore. 
There ain't. If you think of the Tommy Coopers and the Max Bygraves and the Bruce Forsythes, I mean, all those people, apart from Bruce, bless him, they've gone. Um, and I don't know half these people. I mean, a comedian today goes on and instead of saying, funny thing happened on the way to the theatre, blah, 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 and goes into jokes, they talk at you. I mean, they'll come on and say, oh, I'm gay, uh, and I must tell you a few blah, 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 uh, and you in the front row, missus, got your fat. I mean, <laughs> they, they're not funny anymore. They're insulting, they're rude, they swear. I mean, I can't believe I did a thing called Benidorm few years ago and in the script was the f word and i apologized to my children i said i've never said a word like that in public or on television i said you've never heard me say it at home but to actually have to say it as part of a script nowadays um so basically not only have summer seasons changed not only have the touring has changed everything in the business has changed when i started uh, in 1950, you learned your trade by working in a repertory company where you did a play, a new play, uh, I say a new play, a different play every week, um, which meant by the time you got to Saturday, you knew it. <laughs> Thank God it was over by then. Um, but you learned, I mean, I worked in so many different repertory companies around there. The, um, the, it's where you learned your trade. It's where you became... You learned your apprenticeship. That doesn't exist anymore. The variety. There, there's nowhere to go. Uh, those big clubs, those big nightclubs have all gone up north. Um, I mean, on the island, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a new, there's a theatre there in Lynn Street in Ryde, which has been closed for I could knows how many years. And you think, that's so sad in these empty theatres. Because it has changed and not for the better. If that sounds like sour grapes, I don't mean it. So, along with Terry Scott, Danny LaRue and Christopher Biggins, you also became synonymous with playing a plethora of pantomime dames. In your opinion, how significant are these roles in determining the success of a production? Well, pantomime dames. I mean, we're the only country that do it. They tried it in the States, in Canada, etc. But it's never really worked. Um, I mean, I, but I mean, I used to do a, a gag where I'd say to the audience, let me explain about pantomime. Hands up anybody, anybody here from, say, Australia. And somebody would put their hand up and I'd say, now in Australia, you have men who dress up as women, but you get sent to prison for it. Um, I said, but in pantomime, men dress up as women and women dress up as men. And I have no idea why, but people like Arthur Askey, comedian like Arthur Askey, used to sort of made no pretense of being a woman at all. And in fact, the less makeup you put on, I think the better. Um, when you have people like, I mean, Biggins, looks beautiful, he looks lovely. Danny LaRue, <clears throat> bless him, he looked prettier than the girls in the chorus. When I went on as dame, I used to make these false eyelashes out of paper, cut them out, stick them on my eyes. And when I did one particular sketch, which was called Busy Bee, where we used to spit water over each other, 
my eyelashes got wet and they used to come off and I used to stick them on like that as if it was a moustache. So the point is I used to take the mickey out of the fact. You must never, I mean, in pantomime, I was always told the audience should not go away saying, wasn't Melvin Hayes good? They should go away and say, wasn't Widow Twanky lovely? In other words, they should be so immersed, they shouldn't be seeing them as, you know, reality stars. Um, I was doing a pantomime years ago, uh, doing an Aladdin. And on usually in the summer, you meet up in the summer to have photographs taken to promote the pantomime. And this lad came up to me and said, are you going to teach me to act? I said, how do you mean? He said, I'm playing Aladdin. I've never been on a stage in my life. And I said, and he said to me, what does Aladdin do? I said, well, she mar he marries the princess. Anyway, fast forward, one night on stage, he rushes on, doing his costume up. I'm playing Widow Twanky. He's playing Aladdin. And he said, I'm sorry, Milv. I'm a bit late. I said, Milv? Milv? I'm your mother. And that was a young lad called Jeff Brazier, who was um, the partner to Jade. Do you remember Jade? Mm -hmm. Uh, from television and bless him it was he hadn't learnt anything at all of the tra traditions of pantomime is that you keep in character whatever's going on everything goes anything goes wrong i was doing one pantomime um where the goose it was mother goose and the goose on the opening night it was an enormous goose and there was this scene where the goose, the music goes, and the goose lays three golden eggs, each one bigger than the other one. And the drums are going. And he came across to me, this goose, packed house, 2,000 people in the theatre. And he came across and bent his head down and said, Melvin. I said, what? He said, I've forgotten to load up the eggs. I said, you what? He said, I've forgotten to load up the eggs. Mm. So I said, well, go and get them then. So he waddles off stage, and the rest of the cast look at me, and I say to the audience, we're going to have a little game now. Can anybody guess the goose's middle <laughs> name? And they're all shouting out and screaming out, and I'm looking into the wings until the goose comes back on again. And I never mentioned it again. But the fun for me was always when, when things went wrong. Uh, I won't do pantomime anymore. I never say never, but I won't, because when I started doing pantomime, you maybe did twice nightly, or you maybe did a show, and then a matinee on a Thursday and a Saturday, but now they want to do three shows a day, they want to do shows on a Sunday, or some theatres you do 10 o'clock in the morning, and then the second house is 7 o'clock at night, so you're in the theatre from 9 o'clock till midnight. Um... And and you're working with people that have never been on a stage in their lives like he was from these reality shows who've got no idea. And it's such a tradition that um, I see at the Palladium this year, they're doing Cinderella. There was a big picture in the newspapers and I can't work out who are playing the Ugly Sisters because there was the pictures of everybody, but nobody was dressed as an Ugly Sister. Many people say that a good Christmas film can be like a pension fund. 
because each year is bound to be shown at least on one TV channel. In 1985, you were involved in the festive blockbuster Santa Claus the Movie. What was it like working with Dudley Moore and John Lithgow? Well, apart from the fact that you don't get paid from films when, you're on tele- when they're on television, all those films yesteryear, now they put in a contract, they'll put in a contract and say if it goes on television, you get an X amount or something. But in those days, none of them, I did about 50 films <laughs> and I never got, and they keep on being shown again and again and again. And there's a new channel now called Talking Pictures, Channel 81. Brilliant, brilliant. All my old films keep on being shown. Uh, Santa Claus the movie. Now that was an epic. That was, I mean, I was on tour and I get this call. Would I go and meet this director uh, about um, Santa Claus the movie? And I go and see this director and I'm on tour and I come down to see him. Uh, That was at Pinewood Studios again. And he said to me, um, how tall are you? So I said, five foot three and a half. Can you wear a beard? I said, yes. He said, okay, fine. That was it. Three weeks later, I'm up in Manchester on tour with this play. I get a phone call. Could I get to London the next day to meet the producer, the director? Um, So I get there again. And he said, hi, um, how tall are you? I said, would you believe I haven't grown since last week? I'm exactly the same as I was three weeks ago. Uh, Can you wear a beard? Yes. Fine. So I said, well, could I see a script? No, nobody can see a script. They're not being, not even the guy that's playing Father Christmas can see a script. He said, so I said to my agent, well, we can't do a deal because I don't know how big the part is until I see a script. So, uh, he said to my agent, they, they said to my agent, the part is the fifth biggest part in the film. So I said, oh, on that understanding, I'll take it. So the script arrived on the day we're due to start filming, or the day before, and I phoned my agent and I say, could you try and find the telephone number of this director? He's staying in a hotel in London somewhere. And I got through to him, he said, yes. I said, when are you making Santa Claus the movie too? She said, we're not. We're just making Santa Claus the movie one. There is no one. It's just Santa Claus the movie. I said, I see. He said, why? I said, because I've looked through the script. And not only do I not have any lines in the script, but my character is never even mentioned anywhere from beginning to end. And he said, have you never heard of rewrites? And I said, how do you mean? He said, well, he said, as we go along, we rewrite it. So I said, yes, but you can't rewrite if there's nothing to rewrite from. Anyway, I went on the picture and I was guaranteed 10 weeks' work on this film. That's so much um, a week. And every day I went up to him and I said, when are the rewrites coming? And uh, he said, uh, don't bother me. He said, because they take time. And every day, and I said, I only want, give me a 30-second scene. That's all I want. So to register something in the film. Otherwise, there's no point in my being here. So finally, they wrote a little scene where I made Father Christmas, Santa Claus's costume, the wrong colour. I think I made it green instead of red. And while I'm shooting the scene, uh, Daddy Moore's girlfriend 
standing by the camera. She's about 16 foot tall, so you couldn't miss her. And she started to laugh during the scene, which killed the scene stone dead. They had to stop the gun. And the director said, you're very funny. And I said, yes, but you've learned too late. And when the film came out, um, Daddy Moore went back to America. So did the guy playing Santa Claus. And they phoned me and said, you're the only actor in England that we feel that could meet Prince Charles at the premiere. Uh, I said, I'm not going to the premiere. I said, I don't ever want to see the film. And I think I've seen some bits of it. So you asked me what I thought of Santa Claus the movie. Not much. It could have been the greatest film because I understand the opening shots with all the snow and everything with magic. But then it went, took a twist where it went to America and there were dancing girls in it uh, and the Lithgow character and it suddenly lost. And then I found out why they interviewed me twice and the reason why they got me and a few other British actors in. They wanted to have all those other um, characters playing, you know, the helpers and everything. And they all had to be small and they all had to be little. And they wanted to employ non-equity members. They wanted to employ Joe Public. And that's what they did. That's why they had hundreds and hundreds. And that's why they gave me a 10-week <laughs> week, um, contract. But I got my own back because I used to walk around with this beard, with a plastic bag on it, and to keep it clean. And during one of the scenes, when they said action, I left the bag on. So somewhere in the film of Santa Claus the movie is me with a plastic bag on my beard. In 2001, you starred alongside a stellar comedy cast for the sketch show Revolver, something we're particular fans of. So was I. How was it working with your sitcom contemporaries all those years later? It was wonderful. It's such a shame. Because it was made in Scotland, we had no promotions on British television. It went out at about five past 11 at night. Um, they, they never even gave it any publicity. Um, and when you think it had, at any one time, in any episode, uh, it had about 15 to 18 names to get them together what would happen is someone like john inman say would come up to glasgow where we were filming for one day he would shoot six scenes of the same character and they would be dropped in to six different episodes um i mean out of 150 sketches i did about 127 um it was wonderful uh to work with some of the people um and some of the the only, the only trouble was some of the material could have been better. In fact, there's a, a comedian, one of these comedians, and I can't think of his name at the moment, but I was watching him at a club uh, a few months after the programme went out. And I'm sitting there in the dark, and this comic, very tall man, he suddenly stopped in the middle of his act, and he said, excuse me, can we have the lights up? Is that Melvin Hayes? I said, yes, 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 yes. And he said, I owe you an apology. And I said, why? He said, I was the script editor on Revolver. He said, and I let some of those terrible sketches go through. Um, but the ones that were good were good. 
uh, and I'm glad you liked it because I'm, you're about the only people I've ever met that liked it, that saw it. You know, it's a shame. You can get it, you can still see some of the sketches on YouTube. If you go on YouTube, you can see, put in my name or anybody that was in it, and you can see, and, and they did, they were funny, some of them were mm. funny. I mean, what's his name? I mean, out of the three of us, I mean, the three that, that were running through it right the way, um, Nicholas Smith um, and um, Roy Barraclough. Um, Nicholas is now gone, but we, we did so many sketches that we bounced off each other. Um, and I, we did two series. We should have done more, um, but um, we had a mad director. I mean, the director did all these crazy shots where you, what you never ever do in, in television is look into the camera. You look across, whatever it is, unless you're specifically, you know, a presenter or a newsreader. And he had us looking straight into the camera and he put it so it's all wide lenses and things. But I'm glad you enjoyed that. A couple of years ago, we were invited to the Grand Order of the Water Rats Museum in London. You became King Rat in 2005. Tell us a little bit about the atmosphere when you're all together. Well, it's been going, it's um, the Grand Order of Water Rats has been going for well, over 100 years. And there's never been more than 200 together. But it's, when you say what's the atmosphere like, we meet in a pub, uh, which, is, which we own, called the Water Rats. Uh, and it's a charity, but it's called a, it's a Cinderella charity. In other words, somebody can phone up and say, I can't pay my rent this week. So they're not asking for a million pounds. They're asking for maybe 150 quid or something. Um, and, and you see people that are big names on television or films or whatever over the years. But there, they're just another guy. We, it's us and what we call the people outside of the civilians. Um, I remember when I first joined, um, there's a moment when suddenly you see for the first time who they say you've thrown your lot in with. And to suddenly look around and see all these famous faces. I mean, like when you think people like Charlie Chaplin was a member, uh, um, Laurel and Hardy, Bob Hope, uh, some of the greatest names over the years in show business. I think we've got two new people coming in very shortly. Um, the hairy bikers. I mean, that's... that. Except that we've got less and less names coming in because there are less and less names in show business. Uh, I mean, when I was king, I couldn't believe it. It was... Um, I had... What I wanted to do the year I was king, we have a ball, you know, a big ball... Uh, at the Grosvenor, usually, the Grosvenor Hotel in London's West End. And I said, I want a picture taken. I want a picture, I don't know how we can do it, of every member of the Water Rats who is alive today uh, in one picture. Can it be done? All in dinner suits. And so everybody sent in pictures, and, and I've got it hanging up, and there's also a copy of it hanging up uh, at the Water Rats. And there, I'm in the middle, and behind me is Prince Charles, Prince Philip, um, and they are what's called associate members. They're, um, 
they, I mean, I remember saying to Prince Philip, um, it was it was at a charity do, and I, I said to him, you're not wearing your emblem. Our emblem is a little rat, little rat which we which we wear, a water rat. That's why we call it the water rat, little rat. And if somebody you find is not wearing one, you can say to them, why aren't you wearing your emblem? And they have to give you five pounds for the charity. And I remember going up to Prince Philip at a charity, and I said to him, Prince Philip, I said, you're not wearing your emblem. And he looked at me and said, I don't think this is a water rat's occasion, and changed the subject and said, um, have you been on the Euro Tunnel yet? Which came from nowhere. And when I, I stood up and said that in the open lodge, and Paul Daniels, one of our past kings, said, isn't that strange? He said, because a few weeks after you were there, he said, I was at the palace entertaining, and I suddenly heard, psst, psst. And he said, I looked around me, and there was Prince Philip leaning round the door, beckoning me. And I went over and I said, yes, sir. And he said, look. And he opened his lapel and showed me he was wearing his emblem. So it obviously worked. But I haven't been there for a little while. I must get back again. But being on the Isle of Wight, I've worked it out. The ferries are so dreadful, the time-wise, that by the time I got there, I'd have to leave immediately and come back again. So Prince Philip still owes a fiver? He still owes a fiver, mm. yes. Retirement is notoriously a funny concept for entertainers. Ronnie Barker famously had his antiques business. You've swapped entertainment to help foster children. That must be extremely rewarding. Well, over the years, I mean, I did a, a documentary, a Dharma documentary, many, many years ago, many years ago, about 1950-something, called The Unloved, which was about people, boys in a maladjusted school, school for maladjusted boys. And it must have made some impression on me because I got involved in it. I was doing a tour of the Middle East and the Far East and I came back and I said to my wife, while I've been away, she said, before you say anything, i got an idea I'd like to do. I said, no, just a minute, I'm me first. And I said, while I was, she said, no, no. She said, I've been dying because she'd been away for nearly two months now on this tour. And I said, all right, then you first. She said, I'd like to foster children. And I said, that's exactly what I was going to say. And we both, when I was, I saw it because I saw such terrible things, you know, poverty and that over the other side of the world. And she'd seen it from just being in this country. And so we started. Um, and over the years, we fostered many. Sometimes they've been for um, a few hours. I mean, like they could phone you up in the middle of the night and say, we've got a baby here. Could you just take her for a few hours overnight or whatever? Or the other extreme where we've got three at home now, that two boys, two brothers. They were one and three, and they're now, what, 17 and 20, um, who are now our children. I mean, um, they're what was called gu um, special guardianship. We took out on them. So they can't get away. Uh, and the little girl who came to us um, when she was four for a week, she's now 14 and still with us. Um, but it's people say, oh, it's marvellous of you. It's not marvellous at all. It's, it's, and it's just, I mean, like every kid that ever came to us, we, say, we always used to say, you, 
you can either be a victim, spend the rest of your life being a victim, or you can say, sod the world. I'm going to make something in my life. And, you know, and like, you know, bless him, um, Josh, my son, um, came to us um, with cerebral palsy and then he developed diabetes and he had operation after operation after operation. But the point is, he had a motto. His motto was, I can do that. And he always has done. Um, so, you know, I like to say, thank God we've been very lucky to have had the company of those children over the years. Do you miss showbiz, though? Oh, I'm still in it, would you believe? <laughs> I mean, this is showbiz. I mean, look, this is talking about the, you know, I mean, I, my next job, as far as I can see, is April next year. Um, 25 years ago, I did a cartoon series called Super Ted. Um, I played the skeleton. Tex, I got no muscles. That was one of mine. And I've just heard from America. They want to revive it 25 years later to do 26 half hours. Uh, the only two people still alive is myself, who played uh, Skeleton, and Derek Griffiths, who played... What's the name of the thing I was saying? Super Ted. That's right. When you get to my age, you see, you start forgetting things. What was I remembering? Anyway, um, and we're hoping to do that in April. I was offered something recently. There was a thing on television called uh, the Marigold, the Marigold, Real Marigold Hotel, where they took a bunch of actors to India last year. Well, this earlier this year, they asked to see me, and they were interested in me doing this year's uh, visit to the India. And they were saying, I spent hours with them and discussing and so on, so on, so on, so on. And they were saying, oh, yes, we can't wait. You'll have it. You'll have a wonderful time. This is the fee. This is this. This is it. Then I had a phone call. It was going to be, they said, could you be free from the end of August to the end of September? And could you have all the injections done? You know, you have all the injections. Could you go for the medical? And you're our first reserve. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to have all these injections done to be a reserve. I said, because it means that every time the phone rings for the next month, I said, it could be, could you catch the next plane to India? So I didn't do it. So that, that was it. And the other thing was, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I was told, yeah, you're exactly what we want. And then I never heard another word. But um, I, d I don't really want to do reality shows. I don't think I've spent... How many years? 1950, 66 years in this business to go and eat frogs' bums or <laughs> kangaroo willies. I don't think it's, I don't think that I'm ready for that. No, we leave that to the politicians. I wouldn't mind doing Strictly, even though I can't dance a step. But um, who knows? Um, you never, see, that's the thing in our game. I mean, I had, um, but one of the reasons I haven't done so much lately is three years ago I had um, open heart surgery. I had a triple bypass and a new valve. Uh, and um, I remember the surgeon said to me, when he was telling me about this operation, he said, you have to pretend you're on the Titanic. He said, you're on the Titanic and I'm in a little boat down below in the water. And you have to say to yourself, shall I jump? 
And I said, well, suppose I miff the boat. He said, well, you can swim. I said, no, I can't swim. <laughs> so he said, well, it's up to you. And I did it. And I said, well, do it. I said, if I know anything about it when I come round, then it's all right. And I did. And it was wonderful. And then I did a program for Solent Radio. They asked me to a Christmas Day program, three-hour program. And I said, well, I picked some records. And I, <laughs> and I picked a record and I dedicate this to the hospital in Portsmouth. And it was Wham. I think it was Wham. Was it Wham singing? Last year I gave you my heart. Mm. Nobody thought it was funny except my wife. So looking back over your career in entertainment, what would you say your proudest achievement is? That's a difficult one. My proudest achievement. I always think that if I'm doing a one-line voiceover or a lead in a play or a film, each one's as important. The one that you're doing at the moment must be the one that you're important in. I think the last thing, the last film I did was about a year ago. Um, it was a 10-minute short film. Uh, and that, to me, was the most important thing that I was doing. Um, and then, for example, today, being here with you, this is the most important thing because it's happening now. The past is gone. The future, we have no idea. But the moment is the important thing. I'm writing my book, my life story. I started it 30 years ago <laughs> as an excuse because Jane, my wife, was working in an office. And I said, do you mind if I work in your office with you, using your paper and your typewriter, just so I can be there, it was just an excuse. And 30 years later, I've got up to 1956. So I've worked it out, I've got to live to 375 to finish it. But it's, so I've got up to 1956. I've got lots of bits, it's all in my brain, but transferring it to the paper. It was, um, it's the hardest thing in the world, I think, to write. Um, there was a famous author who said, the hardest thing about writing is pinning the seat of your trousers to the chair, because you keep on thinking of an excuse to stop writing. It's amazing because the point is I, I keep on, I can remember all the things that happened when I started, but the last few years, it becomes harder to remember, you know. And at the end of the day, I think to myself, even if my children are the only kids that read it, they'll know something about my life, what daddy did when he went away, when he was touring all those times. I wouldn't, if I had the chance over again, I don't think I'd spend so many time away from home touring or filming or things because your home is, that's the important thing, you know, family, yeah. I think. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.